Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. So we'll get the sequence of a tumor, we'll get the sequence of the healthy tissue. It will look at all the mutations and then it will simulate the immune system and say these 10 out of these 5,000 mutations, those are targets. And then we can use that and create a unique therapy for each individual. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Bench Talk Bios, a podcast series by LifeSite Partners where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, my guest is Dr. Lars Wegner. He's the CEO of Avaxion Biotech. Doctor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So as always, I'd like to ground our listeners by starting with the elevator pitch. Doctor, where is Avaxion headquartered? How long have you been in business? And give me a snapshot of what you do there. Thank you. Yes. So uh, basically, we are headquartered in Copenhagen, Denmark, where we have uh, everyone under the same roof. We actually been around for 14 years. And our business is basically uh, immune oncology, translating the human immune system using AI. And with AI, primarily mean neural network or machine learning. So what we do, we are really translating the human immune system so we can simulate it in computers. And based on that, actually make unique products within the cancer field. We're currently actually in the clinic with multiple products where they are actually made by AI system. Perfect. Thank you. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about that AI system in just a bit. Before we dive into that, I want to talk for a bit about the Tau of you, if we will. Begin at the beginning. Where were you born? I was born north of Copenhagen, 30 kilometers in a small hospital. Everything <laughs> around Sealand is centered around Copenhagen. And I was born there in uh, 74 on a very, very rainy day. <laughs> Unfortunately, I would love to say it was a sunny day, but it wasn't. I won't ask you how much you cost, but I do know my mother told me she produced the bill. I was born in 1960. I cost about $9. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the first line under education in your LinkedIn profile lists a two-year stint at a military school in Denmark. So was this your parents' idea? You were acting up at home or why military school? probably a bit of all of the things, but it was actually the Royal Medical Rangers in Denmark. And at the time when I was young, which is some time ago, you actually had to draw a number when you turned 18. And if the number was low, you were going to the military. Oh, wow. And lucky me, I think it was 18, number 18. And the guy looked at me and laughed. And he told <laughs> me, I'm going into the military, son. Welcome to the military. And there's really, uh, you don't have a saying. It's drafting. It's changed now. It's a professional and you need to volunteer, but not in the days uh, when I was young. So uh, that's how I ended up in the military. And my parents were quite happy, actually. <laughs> we'll interview your mother later. So was this your first taste of leadership or team building? Like, give me a takeaway from that. 
Yeah, I think it was extremely healthy. So first of all, it was an area I found interesting. I wanted to study medicine so that I got a chance to go into the Royal Medical Rangers. was, of course, a good match. Now oh. that I have the low number, might as well get as much value out. But I actually also was selected to become a sergeant in that setting. And I learned a lot in the military. And when you are 18 and in charge of 20 young people from all over the country, you do learn a few things about leadership. And that was actually the first time I encountered the, what does it actually take to lead and how do they actually lead from the front. I think it's something I would recommend actually for all young people. I think it's a marvelous education you get and you get a lot of trust in the military from a young age, right? You're handling mm-hmm. guns, right? And you're in charge. So I think it's a healthy thing. And it was my first taste of leadership. And I would say I still use some of the things I learned in the military. You did touch on the fact that medicine was part of that experience. So you did go on to get your training in MD. You're in class 2002 at the University of Southern Denmark. And then some further training. You settled into the GI department at the University Hospital in Copenhagen. And this is from 2004, 2006. But then you left. You left the bedside. You became the brand manager for a little oncology franchise in America called Pfizer, which did have a Copenhagen presence. Oh, a bit of a history aside, Pfizer was founded in 1849 by Charles Pfizer and Charles Earhart, very near where I used to live in Brooklyn. And the foundation is still there. There's the little chimney and a little plaque. So brief history quiz, what was Pfizer's first product? Well, that's an excellent question. I really would like to know the answer. I don't. So it will be a qualified guess. It probably has nothing to do with medicine. Correct. It was a precursor to many industrial products, and that precursor is molasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting history, but it's, uh, it's actually a brilliant company. And as you know, they're still at the top of the world. Oh, so yeah. I trained as a physician. I really like the science field. I really like the patients. But I actually always felt I was missing something in the public system. All doctors are hired into a public system in Denmark. Yeah, yeah. So at an age where I've had some clinical experience, I was actually looking at how could you get involved in drug development and actually be a bit more science-driven. And you have two choices. Either you go to the science part of your medical profession, where you always have to go and look for funding in a public system, or you join the industry who are actually creating all the products mm-hmm. in the world. They are created by the industry. So I was a bit naive, to be honest, at that age. So I thought, maybe get a job in the industry and test that out. So what I did was I looked up, and the internet was quite young at that point. I basically looked up at the internet, found the head of Denmark for Pfizer, the CEO, Mm -hmm. and actually also for AstraZeneca. And then I called them, and I said, (laughs) my name is Lars, and I'm a medical doctor. I would like to learn a bit about the industry and get a job. Seriously, that was the approach. It wouldn't work now, but it worked then. I actually got offered two different jobs, one in AstraZeneca and one in Pfizer. And then I chose to join Pfizer. And it was an eye-opener for me. It was a very good experience. There was so much energy in that company. There was so much teamwork that I actually were looking back on my time in the clinic that they didn't have actually that kind of same energy. So I was actually uh, pretty positively surprised and mm-hmm. also on how much energy they actually put into the mission. So I had a wonderful time in Pfizer and I learned 
everything from marketing to medical affairs and also actually to sales. End of the day, sure. sales actually drive the transformation in the healthcare sector on getting new drugs actually into patients. It's still called sales, but they actually play a very important function in doing this transition into new medicine, which doesn't always happen naturally. It needs a bit of a push, else we all just do what we did yesterday. So I actually loved my time in Pfizer. I still meet with the CEO from time to time for coffee. I have to say they were very tolerant because I was a bit young and naive when I joined that company. All right. So there is a take home here for our younger listeners. I've experienced this in my life. You never know what you can get until you can ask for it. So nope. go ahead and ask. Exactly. So, all right, so you had this wonderful experience you just described, but you did leave. You joined a cancer vaccine company called Bavarian Nordic. And this was at a time when cancer vaccines were not very popular. So why jump from this wonderful opportunity to this high-risk operation? It was actually a hard choice, but I think some of it was on purpose and some of it was not. So when you get into the industry, you basically then learn there's something called headhunters. Yeah, I had yeah. this uh, headhunter keep calling me and I kept saying, I'm not interested. I love it here. And when I need a new challenge, I get a new challenge, right? And I was part of the European team on some of the cancer program. I actually got exposed to the first CTL4 in Pfizer's hand when I was really young. Oh, wow. I looked at the data and I think it was long data. So I loved it at Pfizer, but he kept calling me and he said, just take a look at this company. They're doing some excellent science. And then after a few calls, I started looking at the science and I learned that Bavernaudi was actually working with the modified vaccine Ancra, which is a viral technology where you actually genetically modify it to actually address different things. And mm-hmm. that genetic modulation I found super interesting. And here was a chance to actually go into a young company and get closer to the research. And then suddenly I started reading about it. Suddenly I got interested. And suddenly I was talking to the people in the company. And before I knew it, I was offered a job. And then I said yes. And I actually had bad conscience leaving Pfizer, to be honest. It was a tough thing to go and quit a job I actually liked. But mm-hmm. I just so much more wanted this science-driven thing. It was modifying genetically would close to the science. also believe that there would be a revolution in how you could utilize viruses. And as you know, they are having the sum of their prime time now, right? Yeah, so yeah. I worked uh, basically in a wonderful place, but I also joined another wonderful place that did excellent science. Well, you spent uh, 10 years at that wonderful place. You rose to the position of VP of Commercial Affairs, and then you moved on. So I'm sorry, I, I skipped something here. So let's go back. This is a concurrent with your work at Bavarian. You were one of the founding investors of a company called Recon Instruments, which had nothing to do with immunology. Tell me just a bit about Recon and and why. Yeah, so you touch upon my big spare time interest. I really like startups and technology, both within life science, but also in software and hardware. I just like these new innovative things that slowly are changing the world, right? And I met one of the guys that was actually supposed to work for me in, in Bavaria Nordic. He had done his MBA at Melbourne in Australia. Brilliant guy, engineer, right? Young guy, and he wanted to learn about sales. And so I really basically offered him a job. But he also had this MBA assignment that he'd done on creating a new company, 
which was basically head-up display for swimming, right? Hmm. So it basically had a head-up display when you swim because you can get no data when you swim. This is many years ago when people were not having variable technologies. Right now, everyone has variable technology. They did not when that company was founded, okay. right? So I basically got really interested in it. I looked at the business, the business plan, and he was a young guy. And I told him, because you have to take care of the young people, that end of the day, you get an excellent job here. It will benefit you. But if you have a dream to try out to start a company, you will only have regrets if you don't do it. There's yeah, no yeah. trade-off. And then I said, let me basically take all my money. Did not have a lot of money. So everything I saved up, I'll invest it into your company. You move to Australia and you get going. We were three, four guys. And we actually took this money. We gave it to Dan and we said, go create Recon Instruments. And he did. <laughs> well, it worked out pretty well. You flipped it to Intel, and I'm guessing you got a good bit of that money back and then some. After a bit of executive training at Harvard, you went on to found an investment fund, and then you participated in another investment fund. And this is all well, still while you had your position at Bavarian. So you're one of those type A people that can't sit still? Is that the thing? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've been surrounded by good people and also in Bavarian, right? If you had an interest, they will support you in it. Also, if you had one or two board positions. But I have to be honest, my interest is really in starting up companies in the technology space, right? Both in biotech and in tech. And of course, you also have a job. So some of my job is actually doing that. But there's so many interesting things that I want to participate in the journey. And Sometimes I can also provide guidance and some value. So I've been involved in being part of starting up venture companies, also basically starting up some other technology companies, right? Some of it as investors, because of course you have your day job, so you can't mm. spend too many hours. So basically what I do is I believe in technology is going to guide our future. I believe we are in a very unique time right now also in the intersection between technology, computers, and life science. And we are only at the beginning. And the way I actually get my appetite satisfied is to participate in companies either as an investor or help them out or advisor or board member. And I've been part of some very interesting journey, and I find that a huge privilege. Some of them go very well. There's, of course, also some of them that tries to theory that doesn't work out. But I believe in that technology journey. And I think right now we're in the most interesting time. So part of that nexus or the motivation behind your next move is that nexus, that idea. In 2017, you left Bavarian to sign on with Avaxion. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about AI. There is a better way, you thought, from Bavarian. And that way has a name and it's called Pioneer Doctor. What is Pioneer? And please keep in mind, not all of us are PhDs in immunology. Yeah. So Pioneer is an AI system that basically can simulate the individual immune system based on the genetic code. So basically sequence people. And then you can simulate how the immune system actually reacts. When you're able to do that, you can actually take a cancer and you can find out based on the unique mutation, which one can your immune system actually attack. And that's actually what Pioneer do. So we'll get the sequence of a tumor, we'll get the sequence of the healthy tissue. It will look at all the mutations, and then it will simulate the immune system and say, these 10 out of these 5,000 mutations, those are targets. And then we can use that and create a unique therapy for each individual that trains their immune system 
to specifically recognize their unique cancer and kill the cancer cells. That was sci-fi 10 years ago. Mm. And that's really what pioneers, and that's the reason why I'm in Evaction and not in Bavarian Nordic, because history repeats itself. I encountered Evaction in 2012. Okay, My head of business development introduced me to what he called these two young guys. That was Andreas and Nils, the two founders of Evaction. Mm -hmm. And he said, Lars, there is something here. They have some interesting preclinical data, right? And they say they use AI or neural networks, and I can't figure out what they're doing. Could you meet with them? And then I met with them, and I thought maybe I could understand it. I always liked uh, math. And then I sat for one and a half hour with them. I didn't get it, but I did get <laughs> the data. Yeah, yeah. And the data, I thought, that could not be a coincidence, right? The preclinical data. So maybe my conclusion was maybe I was missing something. So I actually sat a full day with Andreas, who is the AI engineer that founded Evaction, and had him explain to me, how does these neural networks work? What data is coming in? How do we train it? And why is this valuable? And my conclusion after that meeting was very simple. It would only be a matter of time before machine learning, when I say AI, it's neural network machine learning mm. that does 95% of it. And what machine learning and neural networks are capable of doing, they are basically capable of finding the relationship between a lot of different parameters that are not logically interconnected, right? And that is a perfect tool for understanding the human body, because if something is complex, it's a human body. So my conclusion was it's only a matter of time before AI will change drug discovery, drug development, how you give therapy to patients. And I also believe that Evaction was actually ahead of their time. They had spent five years on non-diluted funding, kind of in the academic stage, with no salary, trying to make a neural network translate the human immune system, right? And that requires some resilience because the first couple of times you try to do that, of course, it does not work. And at the point where I met them, they had the first proof of concept. And then I also looked at the guys and I said, guys, you're onto something. If you want to create a world leader, you need to change your business model. You need to get <laughs> investors on board. Let me go back to the technology because the word you haven't used, but what we're describing is neoepitopes. Yeah. And this is a word I heard about maybe the same time you did roughly around 10 years ago. And I heard it through Steve Rosenberg, who has been doing this work at the NIH for quite some time as a focus of his work to this day. And out in industry, there are any number of neoepitope prediction algorithms out there, which by definition are proprietary and therefore unknown. So it's hard to compare the math, right? So you went into this, they showed you a bunch of math. But my question is, and investors have this question, is how do you know that the predictions are correct before you push this into a patient? There's unfortunately not a simple answer on that. So what you normally do when you want to see, to find new epitopes, right, which are basically unique mutations from cancer that you can attack that are shown on the surface of your cancer cell, right? right. It's not one single thing you need to do. So if you want to build the algorithm that needs to do that, you need to translate all the cellular processes and each would be a unique AI system. And the first step you do when you want to create something like that is that you see how can I create biological data that explains the input and the output. And I'm just going to take an example. 
which peptide? Whoa, 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 whoa. Let me stop you for a second. When we go into the specifics of how the AI is interpreting the data, that's one thing. But I mean, what assay on the bench are you looking at and say, yes, okay, those predictions are correct? Yeah. So it depends on each of the individual AI systems. So what we always do every time we do something, we validate it in preclinical models. You can't do that. So yes, we might have a good performance of an AI system on predicting, but if it doesn't translate into an anti-tumor effect in our models, it's back to the drawing board. So that's the second layer of validation. The first okay. one is that you actually validate it on a data set that it's not trained on. So first, when you look at the oh, phenomenon, okay. Then you validate it on a data set it's not trained on to see if it can perform well when you know the answer, right? That requires high-quality data. That's step one. Then we always look at, that's fine, but then does it also translate to positive data in the preclinic? And then does it also translate into the clinic? Yeah. And that's really what is required to do it well. So high-quality data that explains the phenomenon makes sure it's actually translated into a benefit in preclinical models, then later on in the clinic. And luckily, we are also in the clinic and are seeing some good results. But that's how you basically validate that Pioneer gets it right. All right, so let's go into the clinic. The Pioneer platform has been leveraged to produce three pipeline candidates thus far. We have named them conveniently EVX01 through 03. Thank you for being so simple with that. Each differ by the method of antigen delivery. So EBX01 is a long synthetic peptide in a liposomal formulation. O2 has an antigen encoded in the DNA of a plasmid, and O3 is, quote, a targeted DNA. So why the three approaches? So as you said, you were also there when the first neoepitope data came out, right? We were also yeah. looking at that, and we were also extremely encouraged with the early data we saw. So we were quite confident, and we are still confident, that we could create the best algorithm to select the new epitopes, right? Mm -hmm. So without that, you're not going to have an effective therapy, okay. right? And that is not something you do overnight. It's taking us a lot of years, a lot of data generation, a lot of iteration, and a brilliant team that we have had 14 years to create. So let's say now we got it right. You and I are convinced this is the best that you can do on predictions, and we got it, right? Mm -hmm. And we have 10 new epitopes. Now we need to train the human immune system to recognize it. And you could do one out of two things. You could say, just going to take one technology that we believe is best, maybe from infectious diseases, and then we're going to bet all on that. Mm -hmm. Or you could do a data-driven approach. And since we are data scientists, we took a data-driven approach. We actually set up standardized models to screen all the delivery technologies that we could get our hands on or could develop in-house and see which one with a new epitope prediction or mythology could actually be translated into an anti-tumor effect in standard neoepitope models that we created in mice. And then we started screening. And when we had a positive hit where we saw anti-tumor effect and positive neoepitope driven anti-tumor effect, we basically wrap it up and get it ready for the clinic. And that means we've been screening a lot of technology. A lot of them are actually not good candidates to create the right kind of immune response to generate an anti-tumor effect, even though you, they encode the new epitope. So mm -hmm. we're taking the best from a data-driven approach. And that's how we ended up. And they work differently. They have different immunological profiles. And we want to make sure that we create the best new epitope product. That's by taking the best and using a data-driven approach and screen everything that's out there. 
And that's why we work with peptide DNA, targeted DNA, and actually also a bit on mRNA. Well, so to be clear, the EVX01 is not first gen, and then 03 and 2 are next gen. You're going forward with all three. Yes, and data-driven, right? And if they are positive in phase 2B, they continue. And we, of course, not going to make them compete in the same direct indications, but new epitope therapies could be used in most solid tumors that has a certain tumor or mutational burden. And that means that there is a lot of benefit that we can generate for cancer patients in a lot of different indications. So we don't see ourselves competing with each other. We also see that uh, cancer are not always 100% the same. And the immune system and the immune suppression around different cancer types are also different. So you might also be in a scenario where one profile match one tumor type better than the other. So we want to make sure we uh, pioneer is successful. And that we are doing by moving all three of these technologies forward based on the pioneer system. All right. So let's go into some numbers and some hard descriptions of trials. We do have data here. EVX01 has undergone phase 1-2B dose finding study. This is in the setting of metastatic melanoma, which, as you mentioned, has a high mutational burden. So if the approach is going to work anywhere, it will work here. So tell me about the protocol of this study. So EVX01, our liposomal peptides, as you said, of course, we choose to be in a very immune active disease. Mm-hmm. When you start a new technology, you want to basically make sure you test it in an area where the likelihood of success is highest. Yep. And first line, metastatic melanoma is where we believe that space is. And we actually designed this study to show, first of all, uh, was the therapy safe? Was it feasible to do it? It's personalized medicine, and we are creating a personalized therapy in less than seven weeks already. And we also wanted to see if it was driving a strong immune response, and then, of course, also looking at the potential clinical outcome. The patients were checkpoint naive? Yeah, so the design was first line, and we had two cohorts in the study. It was a single-arm study. One cohort was checkpoint inhibitor naive. They would come in, get checkpoint inhibitor. We would create their unique therapy in seven weeks. Then we'll come in to the hospital and get their unique therapy after seven weeks. So for the listener, the standard of care in this setting would have been the checkpoint anyway. Exactly, exactly. And they have cancer. It's metastatic. You need to offer therapy at day one. The second cohort were people that were stable on checkpoint inhibitor. That basically means they've gotten checkpoint inhibitor for more than four months, and the cancer was not growing, and it was not diminishing. Mm -hmm. And then we added EVX01 to see if could we then drive a specific EVX01 effect in these patients. And we were lucky to see some very interesting results and quite happy, actually, because what we saw was in this whole group of patients, where you would expect around 40% to respond. Uh, combining checkpoint inhibitor with EVX01, we actually saw 67% response. Yeah, the most interesting part about that, yeah, the overall response rate, certainly, and you did have a 22% CR, but of those CRs, those were two patients that converted from stable disease. Can you tell me just a bit more though, about those patients? Yeah, we were extremely happy to see that. One of them was a 64-year-old lady with metastatic uh, cancer. And what we normally do in these phase 1, 2A, we're really looking for the trend in the clinic, but we also go in and gather as much data as we can on the individual patients uh, that benefits from the therapy to guide our decisions to move into phase 2B. And this lady, she was actually stable 
on checkpoint inhibitor for more than 10 months. That basically meant she had metastatic cancer and it was not really growing, but it was also not disappearing. And she was actually uh, had a pretty low PDL1 expression. So she was not very likely to respond to checkpoint inhibitor. We then created EVXO1, her unique therapy targeting her unique mutation. And that was administered to her more than 10 months after starting checkpoint inhibitor. And what we saw was she had a very strong immune response. She was actually creating specific T-cells towards all the neoepitopes, every single one, at a very high level, and both types of T-cells, both CD4 and CD8. And then as we followed her, we actually saw that she mounted this high immune response pretty early on. And then we started to see all lesion actually starting to disappear slowly. And over 300 days, hmm. her cancer was actually gone. And her scan showed no cancer left. And that's, of course, exactly if you're doing research in this area, this is really what you dream of your therapy will be able to do for cancer patients. And we were extremely happy to see that. And that combined with the overall data, the overall T-cell response, of course, made us very certain that this needed to be moved into phase 2B as soon as possible. And as you mentioned, that phase 2B is, we're working on that. It's going to be 194 patients. When do you expect a readout from that trial? So that EVX01 trial will have its interim readout in 23. Okay. And we're going to have a one-year follow-on on all patients in 24. And actually today, we just announced that we received regulatory clearance to initiate our phase 2B trial of EVX01 in combination with Ketruda for the treatment of melanoma. And we're also quite happy because we actually collaborate on this phase 2B with Merck. And as you just said, basically first-line therapy in this space is, is Ketruda or Devo, which means it's Merck or BMS yeah. that are actually uh, driving this. And us collaborating with Merck in this setting is something we're quite happy. And also, of course, they are also supplying all the uh, Ketruda, which saves our company a lot of money that we can spend on other research instead. Okay, so we're going to talk about that other research as we're running a bit short on time, and I want to get to that. But I would mention to listeners that today that Lars just mentions is January 18th. So the other two assets in the pipeline are EVX02 and 03, which encode the DNA of neoepitopes and a plasmid. These also have, quote, immune-stimulating inserts, end quote, and is APC-targeting as well. So quickly as possible, what are the immune-stimulating inserts, and how does one target an APC? Yeah, so normally uh, plasmid is basically DNA coding, and you can actually also encode for different things that actually boost the immune system. An example of that could be a CPG, a well-known mm-hmm. booster mm-hmm. of the general immune system. So DNA adds some extra opportunities compared to peptides or proteins. This they can actually encode different kind of boosting medicine into the code of the DNA. So the immune-stimulating okay. part is one part, and then, of course, the neoepitope are, of course, also encoded. So now you have basically the DNA going into the cells, just like with mRNA, and your cells is producing the therapy, right? They're producing the neoepitope, they're producing the danger signal, the immune-stimulating inserts, and then you basically get the T-cell recognition, and the T-cell will start recognizing the neoepitopes that are encoded, and they will start to basically multiply, and they will be able to kill the cancer. So that's the beauty of DNA. And then, of course, there are specific cells 
that are basically training the T cells, right? Mm -hmm. These are called antigen-presenting cells. They are also presenting neoepitopes to basically mature and upregulate the T cells. And you can actually also, since it's a DNA technology, you can actually encode targeting mechanism. In this instance, uh, chemokines that we know that antigen-presenting cells have on the surface. So now you can boost the immune system. You can alert it to the specific neoeptopes, so the T cell that recognize see this. But if you could also get that directly honed in to target the antigen-presenting cells that basically generates, activates the T cells, you have an optimal solution. That's what the antigen-presenting cell technology in DNA do. Got it. And what we see in our models is it boosts the T cells, you get higher T cells, mm -hmm. and you also get better anti-tumor effect because that correlates with the new epitope T cells. Okay. You also have some human data here. The first program, O1, is in the therapeutic setting. These O3 and O2 are in the adjuvant setting. And the data here is a preliminary readout from a phase 1-2A trial. So, doctor, just give me a taste of what you found. We announced that data, I think, also in July. So, first of all, this was a phase 1-2A. And, of course, we look on safety. Yeah. We look at feasibility. We look at immunogenicity. And it was well tolerated. We were happy to see that. We were also happy to see that it was feasible to create personalized therapy in a short time frame using DNA. And we also saw a good immune response in all patients. So we were quite happy with the results. And that, of course, also led us to start the planning with the, for phase 2B with our DNA technology. And as I understand it, that will be a protocol of a checkpoint inhibitor versus checkpoint inhibitor plus vaccine in advanced melanoma. What's the timeline here? When can we expect to read out from that? Yeah, it's targeting adjuvant melanoma. So that basically means it's patient that got operated because yep. they had melanoma and uh, with a curative intent. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for these patients, more than 30% relapse within the first year. And that means they basically have metastatic disease. Checkpoint inhibitor is a standard of care, and that benefits a patient because without it, it would be more than 30% in the high-risk group. We believe that adding uh, EVX02 or 3 to that can significantly improve the clinical outcome for patients. It will be a study that will start as phase 2B in the second half of this year already. We're looking forward to that because also in this patient population, there's actually quite a number also of younger people. So it can hit everyone from 30 to 70, where the metastatic is a bit differently in its age category. There's still high need. It's not like it's decreasing the amount of melanoma, it's increasing. All right. That wraps up the discussion on oncology. I would like to briefly mention there are two other assets or programs, if you will, that are entitled Eden and Raven. These are virus targeting assets that will be used for infectious disease using the AI approach. And I encourage listeners to see the website for further details in these programs. But moving forward with, with this, I need to ask you, sir, for legal reasons, where's the IP for all this? Yeah, it's, uh, it rests actually in Denmark. We have a pretty advanced portfolio, all depending on a different platform, both on the technology, the product, the platforms, and it rests uh, where we are headquarters in Copenhagen. All right. And finally, we always have to talk about money. What kind of runway are you looking at right now? And what sort of conversations are you looking to have investors in the near future? Yeah, so we're pretty well financed. We had uh, two capital raise events in 21. First, our listing on NASDAQ, 
successful oversubscribed follow-on in November. Congratulations. And that gives us runway uh, well into uh, 23. So we are quite happy there. So on investor side, we're a new company. So we're looking very much forward to talking about our science, our positive progress, uh, the data coming out during uh, 22. So uh, we're going to have a lot of discussions with investors in 22. I think probably 10 times more than we used to <laughs> because we are the new kid on the block. So we're looking forward to that. I believe we're going to have an interesting uh, 22. Splendid, splendid. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have been speaking with Dr. Lars Wegner. He is the CEO of Avaxian Biotech, the AI immunology company. Doctor, thank you for, so much for joining me today. Was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of life-size Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanada at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.